Well, good morning and welcome. My name is Jesse Tysworth. I'm one of the elders here this morning. I have a good relationship with my mother. I, I always have had a you know, very positive relationship with her. But I would have to say that there's been some things in my life where I think if she was being honest, uh, she would say that she's a little disappointed. I wouldn't jump straight to disappointment. I don't think on a broad level she's disappointed with me. But I would say that there's a, maybe a few things that she'd say uh, that she's disappointed in. And, and one thing you need to know about my mom is she, has this, she grew up with horses. She has this deep connection with horses. Just the, she, she rode them growing up. So this is how she, me, she and my father met. And so, you know, she just, she has this uh, just real relationship uh, with horses. Now, I think I'm doing okay in my life. I think I'm doing okay. A beautiful wife. I have two young kids. I own my own house. Uh, Just recently, the dentist complimented me on my flossing. Um, I no longer go out in public in cargo shorts. You know, I've kind of put that behind me. Uh, And I haven't had a Red Bull in seven months or a Monster Energy drink in a year. So, you know, I think I'm on a real good trajectory there. But I think if my mom was really being honest, if you pressed her, I think that she'd say, you know, if Jesse had stuck with dressage and 4-H when he was 11, he could have made it to the state fair. Um, And there's another way that I think that I'm I'm different from my mom that I think is a little bit more disappointing to her is is she's really um, connected to familial history. Uh, her grandfather, who she was very close to, um, immigrated uh, from Ireland. And she's been to Ireland several times. Um, and, and several times she's asked me to go along with her. And she's described the countryside as being so beautiful. And she could take me to the home where uh, he was born. And you could see the cobblestone fences and the, the greenery and everything. And as she's describing, you know, taking me to this place of my ancestors and to the place where, you know, my family really uh, came from, the whole time I'm just thinking, like, do they have Pizza Hut there? I mean, no one out pizzas the hut. Um, I don't even know any real predominant uh, Irish foods other than Guinness, and I don't like dark beer. Um, I, th- I hear it's really rainy there, too, is, and, and so it makes me wonder, like, like, when you get off the plane, do they hand you an umbrella? Is that being touristy? Like, I just I have no interest in that kind of history. And I know that if you were to ask my mom, she'd just be really disappointed. But Jesse, he just doesn't, doesn't share that same passion with me. So I share with you my disdain for history because I'm going to begin this morning with a brief history lesson. I don't want you to power down just yet, okay? Trust me, I also just have no interest in history, but I think that it will feed into uh, where we're headed this morning. Imagine for me, uh, for a second, if you will, if you were around in the 1500s. If you are in the 1500s, this was a period where faith and government were uh, just inseparably intertwined, where the rule of monarchies and, and the laws and edicts that they passed down that they said were direct from God, that there, there was no way to separate the church and the government. These two things wielded power in such a way that it just, it just had always been. It was never questioned. But when we get into the 1500s, and you were, if you were around in those days, you would have heard of this firebrand named Martin Luther. And he shook up the world when he nailed his 95 theses to the castle church in Wittenberg. And as that happened, something began to kind of shift. There would have been this fission both in family and culture and, and even governments and nations. That you, had to, you had to come to a decision, whether you, you believe that the way that it has always been, that the monarchies and kings and the rulers, they, they got that authority and that power from God, or whether you believed... Maybe it's not quite that way. Maybe, maybe there's been abuses of power, and, and maybe we should look at and maybe establishing things in a different way. And if, if you were alive in that time and you were searching for answers, you could have rightly said to yourself that no one before me has ever had to deal with these kind of issues. 
If you skip ahead to the 1700s and, and you were alive in that time, there was this economic shift that began to happen. With the, with the rise of the Industrial Revolution, machines came about that all of a sudden wholesale wiped out industries and jobs that would have been done by people for generations. Machines like the steam engine, the automatic loom, the thrashing floors, the, these machines took over the jobs that, for, that people had learned how to do it from passed on from father to son to mother to daughter. And all of a sudden, in a short period of time, not only did these machines do your job instead of you doing it, they also did it better. And there was no turning back from this reality. At the same time as there's this economic shift that's happening with the rise of mechanical invention, there's also the whole questioning of the slave trade. By the end of the 1700s, there was, there was beginning to be governments were abolishing slavery. It didn't happen in America until the late 1800s. But in the 1700s, this whole industry was shaken up. And this was the labor force that a lot of uh, industries that were built on. And, and, and during this time, you would have had to come to this kind of decision. You know, do, do I believe that slavery is okay and uh, that I want to be a part of the trade or that I'm okay with uh, doing uh, those part of things? Or uh, do, do I stand on the other side? You know, wh- where do I land? And, and there would have just been this deep economic shift that happened in the 1700s. And if you were alive in that time, you could have been asking your question rightly, you could have been asking yourself and rightly said, no one before me has ever had to deal with these types of issues. If we fast forward to the early 1900s, this was a, a period that was marked by death and destruction and war on a scale that the world had never known before. Now, sure, there had always been war. There's always been conflict between one nation to another, between one people group and another. But it, it, every, every time before, and whenever war had broken out, the, the determining factor was by population, which side had more people. Uh, but with the advancement of mechanical warfare, all of a sudden tanks and planes and bombs had given power to rulers in such a way that they could affect not only just a small area, but world war broke out in a way that no one had ever seen before. And it happened so rapidly, the, the rise of World War I, World War II, that you wouldn't have even had the opportunity to, to think about, you know, which side am I on, or, or how is this going to affect me, or, or, you know, am I going to go off to war? No, the fight came to your doorstep. The fight came to your doorstep, and, and it affected absolutely every part of your life. You're, you're, you would wonder whether you were going to be sent off to war, whether your family members would come back from war. Would you be under a new ruler? What, what would all of this look like? And it would have created this deep unrest within your soul because it shook every aspect of your life. And if you were alive in that time and you were searching for answers, you could have rightly said, no one before me has ever had to deal with these types of issues. Does this ring true to us today? Questions about social and political divide, economy and turmoil, even the effects of war? I bring this up because I don't want to minimize the challenges that we face today. These are real things that each one of us have to deal with. But at the same time, I think we all fall prey to this phenomenon known as the recency bias. And this is this uh, tendency that we all have to place greater weight, greater importance on the things that's happening in our own lives and kind of turn a blind eye to whether or not we're the first ones to ever having uh, dealt with the things that we have to look at. We ask ourselves, who has seen this deep level of ingrained political and social divide? Who has seen an entire society come to a screeching halt in the midst of a pandemic and then struggle to return to a sense of normalcy? Who has seen the rise of personal unrest reach such a crescendo that it's become popular to question the very definitions of man and woman, marriage and family, health and even self? 
As I struggle with these questions myself, I become disheartened because I think that the problems that I'm facing and the problems that we're facing today don't have any answers because they've never been asked before. This morning, I'd like to share with you that when life feels as insurmountable as the first glimpse upward towards Everest's peak, the Bible gives us the good news that the path to the top is well-trod and that the map leading the way is full of detail. Biblical wisdom is our guide through life's challenges, and she has stood the test of time. Let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for this opportunity and this time to come together. I just pray that this morning that you would quiet my voice, that we might hear yours. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we're going to get into the book of James, and this has always been a favorite of mine. I even studied uh, the book of James in a class when I was in college. But uh, one of the things that I really enjoy about the book is that um, it's such a practical book. Um, and there's a few things that the, that the uh, book in total touches on. It touches on suffering, enacting your faith, true wisdom, and sober perseverance. One of the interesting things about the author, and there's a little bit of controversy surrounding um, the actual writer, is the way that it's written, the way that it jumps around, the sophistication of the Greek language uh, makes people really question whether or not it was James that had written this book, the younger brother, uh, the younger half-brother, I should say, of Jesus, uh, being raised in the household that he was. Would he be able to have penned this letter? You know, when you, when you read it, it reads differently than the letters of Paul, which are singular uh, in the way that they sound, and they're, they're common for the language of the day. Uh, but, but whether or not uh, we get into you know, the actual author and, and those kind of things, the, the things that I really enjoy about it is the, the breadth of the topics that it covers, and also to the whom it's written. It's written to those believers that are scattered out among the nations. And this is practical advice for any reader uh, who has the opportunity to dive in. It's for rich and poor, for men and women, for young and old. It applies to all people, and it's plain advice for everyone. What we'll see this morning is that God has wisdom for us, that, and we must avoid a, a few common pitfalls to be able to dive into that advice and reap its reward. So let's get into the verses that we're going to take a look at this morning. James 1, 5 through 8. It reads, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea, blown and tossed in the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unsustainable in all they do. Now, the, the first observation here is a real softball one, but I think it's worth saying. If you lack wisdom, if you find yourself needing something this morning, you should go to God. I think all of us have this tendency when we're faced with something new, we want to buckle down, we want to look within, we want to figure it out on our own, we want to go to trusted advisors. But when we find ourselves in that situation, we ought to take the advice from Proverbs 9.10, and it's a familiar one. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Not to forsake what we can, uh, the people that God has placed in our lives, but our first inclination, our first turn ought to be to the Lord. And I think that this is the first way that we can often miss the wisdom from heaven. It's by ignoring the origin of wisdom. I recently listened to a sermon from Paul Tripp. He's a, he's a great speaker, and he talked about uh, this passage specifically. He talked, what he talked about was the doubting and doubled mind 
of the man that's described in this passage. And I think often we have the sense that the doubting man is doubting whether or not God will give wisdom, whether or not God wants to provide the wisdom for us. But it's not so much that. Paul Tripp, uh, in his interpretation of this, uh, said that the doubting man wonders not whether or not God will give the wisdom, but whether or not we want to follow it. And it's kind of part of the nature that each one of us have, is that while we make a decision in one instance that we want to follow God's word, that we want to seek his advice, that we want to seek his counsel, at the same time, we're drawn and we're pushed and pulled by our own emotions, by our own sinful desires, that what happens throughout a day, in one minute, we can be so devoted to what God has for us, and in the next moment, we're being pulled by, by our own ambitions, by wanting uh, to you know, pursue something of our own. And when it's talking about doubting, it's talking about this lack of the steadfast commitment to what God has for you. We need to have the understanding that reliable wisdom comes from God, and honestly, he doesn't need our input. Let's continue on reading. We're going to move on to uh, chapter 3, verses 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by the deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. And I want to key in on a phrase here, and I've highlighted it up on the the screens. Key in on the phrase, selfish ambition. We continue, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual and demonic for where you have envy and selfish ambition there you will find disorder in every evil practice there is no wisdom to be found in selfish ambition selfish ambition is the thing that takes our eyes off of christ it takes our eyes off of the sound wisdom that comes from above and it turns it inward it blinds us to what god has for us it asks us we ask ourselves how can i elevate Myself And this word in the ancient Greek is erethea, and it means places interest ahead of what the Lord declares to be right or what is good for others. And this is a common word. It's actually repeated a number of times throughout um, the scriptures. And one of the most famous is in Philippians 2.3, where it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourselves. This selfish ambition is a powerful thing. And it's within each one of us. And I I recently read this article by John Bloom in the website Desiring God uh, that paints a very poignant picture of the effect that selfish ambition can have on us and and almost the inescapable nature sometimes that we all fall prey to. John uh, talks about the instance of the Last Supper. And when we think about this, this this should have been a beautiful moment, right? Jesus has gathered all of his closest followers around him. He's predicting and preparing for his own death. He's letting them know what's coming in the coming days because it's going to be jarring. It's going to be frightening, and he wants them to not be afraid. He's identified his very betrayer in his own myths as he identifies Judas is going to be the one uh, who's going to betray him to the authorities. And he's showing what the ultimate sacrifice the ultimate service to to the generations around him, to the chosen few who will bring his story to the rest of the world. So we we have this beautiful moment where Jesus is trying to have a connection with his disciples, where he's really trying to invest in them this one last time, establishing communion for all the rest of the church. And as all of this is happening, we we can kind of see in the account from Luke, the disciples are kind of over off to the side and then are going, I want to be the greatest among you. I want to sit at your right hand. They're, they're having a fit over and arguing with one another about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. It's, 
It's the most ludicrous thing to think of. And it's the selfish ambition that's welling up within them to make them take their eyes off of Christ in a moment that when they should be focused on nothing else. And it's easy to say, well, I wouldn't do that. If I was sitting under Christ's teaching, that wouldn't be me. But no, we need to recognize that we're all held captive by the sin that's within us. And even in moments when we should be so tuned in to the glory and the perfection of Christ, the sin within us makes us look within and try to elevate ourselves. Jesus' chosen disciples couldn't keep their eyes on him long enough to listen and enjoy the last few hours with him because their own erythea caused them to quarrel and argue with one another. Let's keep going in the passage. In verse 17, here we see what heavenly wisdom really looks like. This is the pattern. If we want to know what heavenly wisdom looks like, if we know that selfish ambition robs it from us, if we know that looking within is not the place to find it, here we see in James 3.17 what heavenly wisdom really looks like. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Now, unfortunately for us, this isn't really what we think of often when we think of wisdom. Let me ask you, who's the character in the Bible that we most often associate with wisdom? Shout it out. Solomon, Solomon, right? We all think of Solomon. And is there one story that often comes to mind when we think of wisdom? The woman. The woman. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. When we think about wisdom, when we think about it from the Bible, we have this story, right? And we all know the story. There's these two women that come to Solomon laying claim to a baby. And he's meant to decide which one of them is going to get it. And so he goes back to his chambers, and he comes out with this rendering. He says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to cut the baby in half. You're each going to get a half, and everyone goes home happy. Well... Obviously, the true mother of the child says, no, 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 no. I would rather have my baby go to someone else than to see it cut in two and be killed in this moment. And in that moment, obviously, it reveals the true mother in the circumstance. And what we love about this story is it's just so clever. Isn't it so satisfying? The right thing happens but it's also really clever for Solomon, right? It, it just, it just, it strikes that perfect note of just, it just rings true of like, there's just enough of it that feels good to me while at the same time accomplishing God's goals. That is not biblical wisdom. That's not biblical wisdom. What we, what we, this is what we want. We want this uncommon way to accomplish first our own goals and then God's goals too, if it happens to work out that way. This is why we're so lured into the secret to this, the top tricks to accomplish that. We want the easy, the fast way. We, we know that there's a hard way to accomplish something, but man, we love it when it comes out nice and easy for us. And, and we're lured into these themes. And, and, I, and I have to say, I, I, I'm sure all of us could talk about times when we've tried something, when we've tried a shortcut and it didn't work out. I can think in my own life, until I was probably like 20 years old, I was trying to gain weight. I wanted to get stronger as I was, I considered myself a basketball player. And then you hit 20 and you're just trying to lose weight, right? And you know, just ever in this state of like trying to just drop a few pounds. And I've tried everything. I've tried everything. I've done juice cleanses. I've done the intermittent fasting thing, different workout plans. And one time I read this book. I don't even know where I found it from, but it, it put forth this, this plan where you would uh, drink small amounts of tasteless uh, extra virgin olive oil at different times throughout the day, and it was supposed to trick your metabolism into burning calories at different times, and 
you were getting calories that weren't associated with taste. And if you just did it long enough, you would be able to, you know, just drop pounds. Like you just, you just got to stick with this thing and you were just going to drop pounds just magically. It did not work. Not even a list. Terrible, awful, awful, awful plan. But it was so enticing, right? I didn't have to exercise more. I didn't have to change my diet. This was the sales pitch of this thing that I took hook, line, and sinker, but that I could lose weight without putting in any of the effort. And this is what we all want. We're all looking for this kind of secret to get the way, to get the things of God. We want the blessings of living under biblical command without the obedience that requires. And we apply it to so many different areas. We want sexual fulfillment without the confines of marriage. We want lasting relationships with our kids without sacrificing our social schedules. We want health and well-being without muzzling our own gluttony. We want deep purpose without sacrificing autonomy. We want the easy, the fast, the free, and it just doesn't work out that way. That's not the way that God has laid things out for us. I have a friend that I just talked to recently, and he and I went to uh, school together, and we've been friends for a long time. And uh, he, like me, put on weight as he's gotten older. He's uh, my same age, and he had a kid uh, five years ago. And when he, uh, right before he had the kid, he was a bigger guy. He was a little bit taller than me. Uh, he, I think he got up to close to maybe like 270, 280 pounds. And I just asked him the other way because he's been losing weight. Uh, ever since this point, I said, what is your secret? I think, how much weight have you actually lost? He said, he's lost nearly 80 pounds, and he's kept it off now for, I think, three or four years. I said, what is it? What, what are you doing? How, how have you been able to sustain this kind of health and this kind of change to your life? And he says, I wake up early, 5 o'clock, and I exercise. And so what do you do? Is it, you know, is it some special workout? Is it P90? You know, what, what is it that you're doing to achieve these kind of results? He's like, it doesn't matter. But it's every day. I wake up early and I exercise. And, and, and this often is how biblical wisdom works. It's about faithfulness in the moment by moment. It's about hard work. It's about sacrifice. It's about discipline. It's not giving in to the methods of this world. I want to point out a, a verse to you um, from another point. Uh, it's Romans uh, chapter 5. And, and, and I want to key in... Um, I want to key in on one thing. It begins by saying we rejoice in our sufferings. And, and, and this word sufferings, I think, often derails us a little bit. In, in biblical sense, when we hear about suffer, sufferings, we often think about jail, about being tortured, about these kind of things that often seem disconnected from our own lives. And, and not that those things don't happen, certainly that they do. Um, but, but we think... But, in our own lives, they're, they're maybe not so relevant. So as we read this passage, when you hear the word sufferings, I'd like, to, I'd like for you to replace it with discipline or discomfort or sacrifice. I think in this verse, these verses in Romans 5, we'll see a little bit more of what God has for us about how our attitudes ought to be. But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. We need to embrace the biblical ideal that the hard things lead to good things. That suffering, discipline, discomfort, these should not be resented. They should not be avoided at all costs. Now, I'm not saying go out and look for pain. I'm not saying go out and revel in this. Certainly no one would do that. But when we find it in our lives, in the moments where there's something required of us that causes us a little bit of pain, in the things that take sacrifice in order to 
accomplished. Those are the things, and this verse tells us, we ought to rejoice in those opportunities. Now, we see the methods of worldly wisdom Then, when we ignore the origin of wisdom, when we ignore the methods of wisdom, takes us very quickly to nowhere at all. But now we need to see God's way. If it's not the way that feels natural, that feels normal to us, the way that, that feeds that selfish ambition, what does worldly wisdom or heavenly wisdom look like? And, and it's laid out for us in James 3.17. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. You can't say that God didn't lay it out for us, right? And there's three characteristics here that I really want to key in. And I think that this is a great way for us to be able to know when we're considering actions, when we find ourselves with tough decisions, when we're thinking about, when we're faced with something that seems bigger than we are, that we don't really know what to do, God gives us this test to be able to evaluate the wisdom that we're following. And there's kind of three things I want to key in on. It's pure, peace-loving and full of mercy. And sometimes this can be hard to think about. How do I evaluate whether or not something is peace-loving or full of fruit? Well, what I want to do is kind of follow that chart right along. And as we evaluate our actions and our attitudes, think about motivation, method, and means. And that first part is the motivation. As you're considering some action when you feel lost and uncertain about what course to take, and you, you're thinking to myself, I could do these two things, and, and I'm not sure which one to do. Think about the motivation behind it. If the motivation is from God, if it's backed by biblical wisdom, if it's supported by those around you, if you can say with honesty that you're not entering yourself into the mix, that you're not motivated by your own self-interest, then you know that you're on the right track. But if you look at your, if you're talking about the the options that you're discovering, and, and one of them is your own goals, or your own hurt, or your own aspirations, you know you're off to the wrong start. The second one is the method of your actions. Here, this is about being mindful of the emotions and the circumstances that are around you. Being respectful of the timing of taking some new move. Being respectful of the authority that's been placed over you and over those around you. And even being respectful of others' weaknesses. I I think that we have this self-righteous thing that if it's right for me, I ought to be able to do it. And turning a blind eye to what might cause someone else to stumble. We know in the Bible we're called to limit our liberty by love. Even if it's right for you, even if it feels right, even if it's not a matter of sin, if if it causes someone else to pause or to stumble, we ought to give another thought. And lastly, can you describe your means? Can you describe your actions as being full of fruit? Are your actions and decisions, are they marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control? Or are they marked by something else? Are they marked by resentment, hurt, anger, frustration? If you can't describe the decision that you're about to make, the action you're about to enact in these ways, by the fruits of the Spirit, then you know you've missed the mark. So we see the selfish ambition and worldly methods thwart heavenly wisdom. But there's one more way that I think that we get off track when we think about what heavenly wisdom is and what it can really do for us. We ignore the point of heavenly wisdom. 
I think we have this idea in our minds that somehow through the right amount of prayer, through the right amount of devotion and dedication, uh, that we're going to hear God like Mufasa up in the clouds. He's going to come down to us and say, I want you to take this job. I want you to marry this person. I want you to tell off your brother-in-law. It's okay for you to do that. I don't think that that's how God works. I don't think that he's that specific often in the way that he speaks to us. Let me show you what I mean. In James 4, 13 through 14, it reads like this. Now listen, you who say tomorrow, today or tomorrow, we will go out to that city or this, spend a year, carry on business and make money. Why do you not, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. We were not made to have all the answers. We were not made to carry the burden of knowing what was up ahead. God says that you can't know what's coming up next year. You don't even know what's happening today. He tells us that he doesn't expect us to be in control of it all, that that's not a burden that we can handle. What he asks is for faithfulness, moment by moment. He wants you to focus on being the kind of person that loves him and loves others, no matter the circumstance. Heavenly wisdom isn't knowing what's up ahead. It's not having special insight into what's coming. We don't have the kind of power or understanding, and we're not supposed to. Heavenly wisdom is recognizing our finite nature and our limits, trusting in God for the most of life that's really outside of our control, and focus on being faithful in the circumstances that he's put us in. Today we're faced with a lot. I'm sure each of you have things that are on your mind, circumstances that seem daunting. You face decisions that can set the course of your life in dramatic ways. You can ask yourself today, and I think all of us could ask ourselves, how do I navigate the issues in the world shaped by COVID-19? How do I love my family when there's a history and pattern of deep hurt? How do I know what school to choose, what job to take, or even what state to live in? How can I wake up each day serve and please the Lord in a culture that is categorically anti-Christian? These are hard questions. And they don't have simple answers. But we can be comforted by the knowledge that we serve a God who's not surprised by our circumstances. He's not up in heaven, pacing, wringing his hands, wondering what's going to happen. No, he has a plan. And his wisdom isn't to tell us that plan. His wisdom is to ask us to be faithful to him. For all of human history, throughout the ages of oppression, to the eras of invention, to the war-torn times of yours and mine grandparents, God's message to his people has always been the same. He says, in this world you'll face many troubles, but fear not, I've overcome the world. And today, whether your decisions seem big or small, whether your circumstances are common or unique, God once again gives us the invitation in the book of James, that when we're faced with something that's more than we can handle, we should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for this reminder that you are the source. That you are the source of wisdom, of power, and of knowledge and that we're only asked to be obedient to your word and to your will. 
Lord, keep us from the pitfalls that we often fall into of looking inward for the answers or trying to find our own way or ignoring the principles that you've set forth for us. Lord, we want to rely on you. I pray that you would give us the strength that in the moments where we need the most help, that we would learn to turn and trust in you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.